I experienced something unusual during my flight to Indianapolis just a few weeks ago. The man sitting next to me had nothing in his ears. No, no uh, ear, no headphones, uh, no iPods, uh, not anything. And he was not asleep. If you haven't uh, been on a flight for a while, uh, you might not realize just how unusual that is. Uh, people want their own space, and it's become challenging to try to, to talk to people. Uh, not knowing how long this condition would persist, I decided to engage him in conversation right away. And he responded to my questions uh, and seemed very happy to tell me about the current trip that he was on, other travel opportunities he had uh, in his life. He told me about his career. He told me about his family. And he spent a little more time there and it became obvious that his uh, two young children were especially important to him. Well, I thought, I, I'm going I'm to use his family then to uh, look for an opening for the gospel. And so I, I said, well, uh, really glad to hear about your family. Tell me, along with all of your other responsibilities as a dad, have you been able to lead your children to a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, he, he paused and said, well, he, he didn't quite know what I was talking about, it seemed. I, so I, I tried to simplify my question a little bit. I said, well, do you and your family uh, attend a church? Well, another pause, but this time he managed to say, well, I guess we don't go to church as often as we should, which we know uh, that probably means they don't go at all. So I said, well, it's not just about attending services. This is more about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I said, and that, that makes a difference not only in this life, but it also is the only preparation for eternity. I said, by the way, on, on that point, do you know where you would be five minutes after you die? Another pause. And he said, I have to tell you, I've never thought about that. Now, on that subject, he is not unusual. Uh, there are many that are giving very little thought to what happens next. What about once this life is over? Why, why is that? Is it because people are tempted to focus all their attention on the temporal affairs of this life. And it's not just unsaved people. We have to live in this world as well. Many of the responsibilities that come with living in this world are necessary. Necessary. 
We have to give them our time. Some of them are very demanding, are, are urgent. Uh, and many of them are very time consuming. We may well wonder, how do you fit in anything else into this busy schedule? Now, Christians uh, may well uh, be satisfied that, well, at least I've carved out some time for God. But according to Psalm 15, I invite you to turn there this morning. According to Psalm 15, that isn't good enough. Carve out some time? God is, is, is not someone you can just fit into a neat compartment of your life. He's not a box you can check off there. Done that for the day, or I've done that for the week. God demands to be at the center of life. And from that place, governing all that takes place. He needs to be over all of it. Not just a part of it. There is a close correlation between what Ashley just sang in her message and song and what Psalm 15 has to say. The imagery is different. We move from the very inviting, warm picture of a shepherd that you can follow and know he's leading in the right direction and will bring you to the destination. Here the image is not quite so picturesque, but there's still an implied invitation There's an opportunity. That opportunity here is portrayed as an opportunity for fellowship with the God of heaven, a relationship with him, a vital relationship that that provides for this life and for the next one. But it does come, according to Psalm 15, it comes with a stipulation. You do have to respond to him. You have to choose the shepherd. Here, to have fellowship with God, you have to do what he says. You don't get to decide for yourself uh, what what the standards are for having fellowship with God. He decides that. And so this psalm opens with with a question, two questions that are very similar, but I think there's a, a little distinction here as well. And these questions are addressed to God. Not to the individual person. What do you think 
you, uh, people ask them themselves and ask each other, what do you think it takes to have uh, a relationship with God and a place in heaven when you die? And people have their own ideas. Well, I think you have to do such and such and be good and, and, your, and your good deeds need to outweigh your, your sins. Uh, that somehow this makes sense to people that we just come up with our own plan for going to heaven. But Psalm 15 opens by asking God, asking him, what do you think? And that these questions come with the expectation that God has answers for those who seek him. You have a desire both for the long term, you'd like to know you have a home in heaven, but it'd also be good to have fellowship with God that can give you the assurance that he's providing for your needs now. He's directing your life. That does sound inviting. So the psalm opens with, so Lord, what kind of person gets to have that relationship with you? What kind of person can have fellowship with the God of heaven, with the reliable shepherd? There are two parts to this then. The first part, he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, in this case, both the verb and the noun have a, a sense of a, of a temporary uh, relation, uh, not relationship, but a temporary place. The, the word tent here is the one that describes uh, in David's day where people worshiped God. It was literally a tent. Yes, even in David's day, David's life marks the transition. He was the last one, the last king who had this, uh, who, in which God's uh, dwelling place was mobile. This, uh, this tent that had moved all through the wilderness wanderings had been located in a few different spots, even in the promised land. Under David, it got moved finally to Jerusalem. But you see, a tent is only designed for temporary occupancy. So this might be referring to our fellowship with God now. Picturing this as being for now, you sojourn for a while. But there is a long-term place, a future place that's next. So this first question is, am I a welcome guest in God's house? In the course of, of this life, our key responsibility is to bring God honor. We do that individually all during the week. We do it together as we are now corporately to worship him. And so this question is, from, from that standpoint, is, God, who can participate in this? Who can be a part of worshiping the God of heaven? What do I need to do in order to be able to do that? 
But then the second question may shift the focus. These are, these are parallel statements, but with an important nuance of distinction. Who shall dwell? Now that verb may well have more of a permanence to it. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? That's a frequent biblical Old Testament image for eternity, for that future kingdom of God. Who gets to be a part of that? I need answers to both of those. I need a relationship with God now, and I need to know I've got a relationship with God that's going to last into eternity. And the two of them are connected. Do I have a lasting place in God's home? Am I a citizen of his eternal kingdom? And am I a participant now in his program on this earth? Those are the questions. Those two questions, the, uh, the answers to those should help guide every decision you make while you live. That's how important these are. These are the foundational questions of life, both now and in eternity. So now the psalmist reveals what God expects, and the answers are the same for both questions. The relationship is the same. God has standards for those who love him, for those who long for this kind of relationship. And these standards have to do with how we live, what we do, even what we say. There's a comprehensiveness even while there is a selectiveness. We think, well, this could have been a very long psalm. There could have been a lot of details to the answer. So, yes, these may be more selective, but they are, they are comprehensive at the same time. This is everything. Verses 2 and 3, he requires conduct that reflects godly character. Conduct that reflects godly character tells us that it's not just uh, some kind of pretension to behaving yourself that would serve here. Uh, this is not something you can fake. It has to start from the inside and be a demonstration on the outside of what's going on in the heart. Conduct that reflects godly character. Verse 2 you must live right before the Lord, acknowledging that he's watching, and it's a close observation. He who walks blamelessly, here's who can have this, this relationship. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Whoa. We're starting out pretty high, aren't we? He's not going to build up here to the hard ones. We're already there. To walk blamelessly. 
wow, we can wonder, where is, where is there room for any exceptions there? Uh, I mean, what day of the week do you get a day off? The walk here describes your whole course of life. It's a broad view of the path that you're on. And on that path, your overall conduct must be blameless. He gets a little more specific in the second phrase. He says, and does what is right. Now, he's focused here on the particular activities of life, the particular choices that you make, that, the, that God's watching all of those as well. So the big picture, your course of life, the details, what you actually do from day to day, from hour to hour, And he gets really picky with the last phrase in verse 2, and speaks truth in his heart. What God's looking for is a one-to-one correspondence between what you say verbally, audibly, and what you're thinking in the heart. You see, we can fool other people by saying something, even if we don't believe it, and how would they know? Unless they are really discerning on facial expressions and body language and so forth. But there is no such deception of God. What would satisfy him is nothing less than your words corresponding to your heart or to say it the other way around, because here's the more challenging one, that your heart is behind what you say. He's looking for real integrity. It's clear. But you must live right before the Lord, even with his intense scrutiny. Verse 3 shifts the focus a little bit to indicate you must do good before the world as well. And here he gets more into your relationships with other people. Uh, Your words and deeds must uphold human relationships. Verse 3 opens by saying, who does not slander with his tongue. Oh, we're stuck on speech here for a little bit. Never speaking evil of other people. That's a high standard as well. Who does no evil to his neighbors, not just what you might say about other people, but your deeds as well. And neighbor here is anybody that's close by, anyone near you at any given moment. God is looking to see that you're doing no evil to that person. And then the last phrase in verse 3, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. We move now from neighbor to friend. There may be a, a, a higher responsibility here when it's a friend 
but to take up a reproach. You see, the better you get to know someone, the closer your relationship, the more you are likely to find out things that are not so good. I mean, with a relationship at somewhat of a distance, it's not that hard to keep up a good image. But if you let someone in closer, they get to see. This would be like in a family relationship to go right to the, uh, to the extreme. Uh, a, a, a man and a woman decide to become a husband and wife. And for all of the starry-eyed expectations of what, how glorious this is going to be, what they also find out is, ooh, he or she is not quite what I expected. There are some flaws here that I hadn't seen before. And you find out that there are more and more that come to light. What this last statement is saying is that those things don't come to light before anybody else. There is no public reproach of the things that, that are, uh, that, I would just use the flaws here uh, as, a, as a term, the faults, the weaknesses, the disappointments. person God is looking for has made the commitment. There's, there's, a, uh, the, there's a relationship here that I'm going to guard. No public exposure. Uh, the word here, a reproach, indicates a taunt for the purpose of social shame. You've got a friend You've got a relationship that's, that puts a little more responsibility on you than no, you're not going to hold that person. You know what he said? You know what they did? Ha, 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 isn't that funny? No, you don't do that to a friend. There's an alternation in this psalm between the positive things that God expects and the negative things that God prohibits. I have encouraged our, uh, our adult Bible fellowship uh, tables to pursue the positive substitutions for the negative lists that are part of this. We'll not pursue that here together, but for everything that God says, don't do this, there is a positive activity or perspective or responsibility he expects you to pursue. That, I think, will be a fruitful, uh, thoughtful discussion. Verses four and five, a little different category besides uh, conduct that reflects godly character. He's looking for conduct that reflects a total commitment. People that are all in. And the test of that, one test of that is the first part of verse four. He says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. 
There's a judgment call going on here, yes, but a judgment call that God's people have to be willing to make. There is a vile person, you identify it as such. You identify it in your own heart. This is not uh, a contradiction to verse three because this vile person is not going to be one of your closest companions. You've already made that choice. But in whose eyes this vile person is despised. Your perspective is, oh, I know what, I know there are some serious issues in the heart of that person. And, uh, and there's, uh, there's just a degree of closeness I cannot endure. But this one provides the positive replacement. He says, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This is a call that in everyday life, you must be faithful to God's values. God despises vileness. God's people need to imitate his perspective on the kinds of activities, even the kind of people that occupy this world. but who honors those who fear the Lord. You see, this goes both directions, faithful to God's values. There's a call here to take your stand. Take your stand with God's people. Even when they have faults, these are the people that I identify with. There are godless people in the world, and yes, they need Christ, and we take every opportunity because nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. You don't cut off opportunity to testify of God's grace, but neither do you entrust yourself to them. Abraham gives us uh, uh, an example of this kind of a choice. Genesis 14 reports Abraham returning from a battle in which he was victorious. And he encounters, on his way back, two kings. There's a righteous king. In fact, that's part of his name. He's king of righteousness. And then there's a wicked king. We would know as the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom approaches uh, Abraham first, and uh, Sodom has uh, 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 Abraham has just rescued the king of Solomon's uh, <laughs> king of Sodom's citizens and all the goods that had been captured by the uh, by the enemy, and. Uh, the king of Sodom walks up and he's going to do Abraham a really big favor. You can keep all the stuff. Just give me back the people. And it's a lot of stuff, a whole city's worth of treasure. You can keep it all. Abraham said, I won't take a thread. I don't want anything that belongs to you. He's recognizing the vileness of that person. 
and will not indebt himself to him. He won't relate to that person uh, in that way. And the king of righteousness comes. And Abraham publicly submits to him, accepts his blessing, and relates to that person. A public stand, not this, but this. Your public stand for good or for evil is part of what God is watching. The last part of verse 4 is a little bit of a different subject, but still under this heading of faithful to God's values and the commitment that that requires. It says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Well, why would somebody swear to his own hurt? Why would somebody make a promise that's going to be harmful to himself? I, I think the way to understand this is that at the time that, you, that a person makes the promise, it's not clear that this is going to be harmful, but it turns out that it, it is. Human nature says, oh, well, that changes things. Uh, yeah, I know I said I would do that, but now under the circumstances, no. I back out of my promise. Not this man, not the man God's looking for. Oh, is this now going to be detrimental to me, whether we're talking about financially or socially? Well, I made a promise. The call here is to keep your promises even when it has cost or loss for you. Be faithful to God's values. First part of verse 5 gets into the area of, of business in this world with a call to be honest in your, in your business. This person, he says, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. We have to understand this one in context as well because interest, whether we are getting interest or paying interest, is a pretty much normal part of life in our world. In the ancient world, in the situation this is addressing, interest was taken against poor people who had no other options. They have to borrow. And okay, with that, with that necessity, I'm going to take advantage of that. I'm going to set the interest rate up here way beyond anything reasonable. This is exorbitant interest. This is taking advantage of the weakness, the predicaments, the, the poverty of other people. Not this man. God says, no, uh, this one will never put out his money at such exorbitant interest in taking advantage. And furthermore, he does not take a bribe against the innocent for a price to be willing to fabricate 
your testimony. Falsify the truth because then I can get something for it from me. No, the truth counts. A commitment to God's values, to be honest in business. These are the same standards God expects both for entering worship, coming into his presence in this way, as well as ultimately entering the presence of the Lord in heaven. The standards are the same. And even in in this life, the standards are the same for coming to worship God and for fulfilling our obligation to bring him glory all week long. There's not a higher standard to be here right now than there is for you to go about your business tomorrow. God's standards are steady. And he's watching the whole time. At this point, we feel like protesting They're too high. This is too much. Who can do this? In fact, no one qualifies. He's describing here nothing less than perfection. And so now what? Where are we left? What we're left with is one more statement at the end of verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. This is a promise. This is not just the way life works. This is the way God works. The fact is, God never discovers these qualities in people. Never. They don't exist in people for him to discover and say, oh, good, you're good enough, come on in. These are qualities God creates in people. He produces these. To whom does does he, in whom does he produce them? the ones who seek him, the ones who want this relationship. That means those who decide to trust him. You trust this God. He is offering this relationship. He has a son who fulfilled all of these. And on the basis of his perfect obedience is equipped to save you, to forgive your failings, your sin, and to enable you to produce within you the very things that God requires. And it's on that basis that God can offer this promise. These are not qualifications for how you get into heaven. These are the goals that God sets for those who trust him 
for the grace that only he can provide. This last part of verse five is God's promise for those who trust him. And there are two parts to this immovableness as well. First, your earthly life will be secure. Nothing can shift you off of this foundation. You can be confident your life is built on the solid rock. Never be moved means never to be shaken. We are living on a very fragile globe. The world became more aware of how fragile it is just this weekend with what is going on in Israel. We have an intense interest in that. The vulnerability of this tiny little nation and uh, taken by surprise, hundreds of people dead. We have no idea how many have been taken hostage. We have no idea what those people are experiencing right now. What an unstable world. Isn't there a lot to be afraid of? No, not for those who are trusting God. They shall never be moved. Though we face the very same kinds of challenges in this life, the same fearful experiences and potentials, and yet we can move through it all with peace and confidence in this God. Your earthly life will be secure. But when he says we'll never be moved, he's also thinking about the long term never. This also includes eternity because your future home will be secure as well. From the moment someone makes the decision, that's the God I want a relationship with. I trust him. I choose him. I accept the saving grace that he's provided for me. And I place him at the same time in the center of my life to build in my life all of these characteristics because now I want to live for him. I want to please him. By his grace, I want that immovable characteristic. The man on the plane that day listened attentively and gave me the opportunity. He didn't hurry me in presenting the gospel. I had a, a good amount of time as I showed him how he could have a personal relationship with God and lead his family to do the same. He listened and he was thoughtful, but then he had no follow-up questions. It was a, a little bit of an odd combination of responses I was getting from him, but I think what was going on is he was realizing oh, this would really be good, but if I do that, that's going to change everything. 
I, I think he was negotiating in his mind. He was thinking, well, if I do that, then I give up this, and oh, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking, but he did accept a, a, one of our bridge tracks I had with me that uh, I, I said, well, this can help you uh, reflect further on the verses that we've talked about today. Uh, okay. Yeah, he agreed to take that and to think about it. But he did seem to realize that if he accepted Christ as Savior, it would change everything, and that was correct. God gives grace to those who want fellowship with him and who know that that fellowship is going to make changes in how you live now. But they're good changes. He expects you to adjust your life to do what he says. You have to come before God with humility, with repentance, and with faith. And with those, God says, come. I'll make the changes. I'll help you with that. I'll forgive and I'll enable. You cannot do this on your own. You'll turn to Christ, whether that is right now for salvation or, God, I know I haven't had you at the center. I've placed you in a position. That position needs to become the governing position of my life. You'll tell him that right now. You'll get the grace you need to live for him. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you understand how weak we are, how sinful we are, how unable we are to please you. Thank you for providing your son as our savior to forgive our sin to change our lives. Father, we pray for any here today, for each one here today who does not know Christ as Savior. Pray that you would open their hearts, that they would respond to your word and the work of your spirit with humility, with repentance, and faith. And Father, would you change all of us we all long to be more like what you have described in your word. We look to you for help to do that. For Jesus' sake, amen.